Welcome to the Law of Self-Defense show. I am, of course, attorney Andrew Branca for Law of Self-Defense. Thank you so much. As always, we're continuing with our reading of the seminal U.S. Supreme Court decision on the Second Amendment, New York State Rifle and Pistol Association v. Bruin, a decision handed down in 2022, so quite recent. We're continuing now with part two of my seven parts of that reading, which is the second quarter of the majority opinion written by Justice Clarence Thomas. So let's jump into that right now. Hey, folks, if you like this Law of Self-Defense content, and I know you do, that's why you're here, you may as well consider picking up a free copy of our best-selling book, The Law of Self-Defense Principles. It's a real physical book. It's not just a PDF download. You can check it out on Amazon, where it's five-star rated, over 1,400 reviews. But don't buy it on Amazon. They'll charge you for the book and the shipping and handling, we only ask that you cover the cost of shipping the book to you. The book itself is free. You can get this book, learn more about it at lawofselfdefense.com slash free book. In Heller and McDonald, we held that the Second and Fourteenth Amendments protect an individual right to keep and bear arms for self-defense. In doing so, we held unconstitutional two laws that prohibited the possession and use of handguns in the home. In the years since, the Court of Appeals have coalesced around a two-step framework for analyzing Second Amendment challenges that combines history with means and scrutiny. Today, we decline to adopt that two-part approach. In keeping with Heller, we hold that when the Second Amendment's plain text covers an individual's conduct, the Constitution presumptively protects that conduct. To justify its regulation, the government may not simply posit that the regulation promotes an important interest. Rather, the government must demonstrate that the regulation is consistent with this nation's historical tradition of firearm regulation. Only if a firearm regulation is consistent with this nation's historical tradition may a court conclude that the individual's conduct falls outside the Second Amendment's unqualified command. Since Heller and McDonald, the two-step test that courts of appeals have developed to assess Second Amendment claims proceeds as follows. At the first step, the government may justify its regulation by establishing that the challenged law regulates activity falling outside the scope of the right as originally understood. The Court of Appeals then ascertained the original scope of the right based on its historical meaning. If the government can prove that the regulated conduct falls beyond the amendment's original scope, then the analysis can stop there. The regulated activity is categorically unprotected. But if the historical evidence at this step is inconclusive or suggests that the regulated activity is not categorically unprotected, the courts generally proceed to step two. At the second step, courts often analyze how close the law comes to the core of the Second Amendment right and the severity of the law's burden on that right. The courts of appeals generally maintain that the core Second Amendment right is limited to self-defense in the home. If a core Second Amendment right is burdened, courts apply strict scrutiny and ask whether the government can prove that the law is narrowly tailored to achieve a compelling governmental interest. Otherwise, they apply intermediate scrutiny and consider whether the government can show that the regulation is substantially related to the achievement of an important government interest. 
Both respondents and the United States largely agree with this consensus, arguing that intermediate scrutiny is appropriate when text and history are unclear in attempting to delineate the scope of the right. Despite the popularity of this two-step approach, it is one step too many. Step one of the predominant framework is broadly consistent with Heller, which demands a test rooted in the Second Amendment's text as informed by history. But Heller and McDonald do not support applying means and scrutiny in the Second Amendment context. Instead, the government must affirmatively prove that its firearm regulation is part of the historical tradition that delimits the outer bounds of the right to keep and bear arms. To show why Heller does not support applying means and scrutiny, we first summarize Heller's methodological approach to the Second Amendment. In Heller, we began with a textual analysis focused on the normal and ordinary meaning of the Second Amendment's language. That analysis suggested that the amendment's operative clause, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed, guarantees the individual right to possess and carry weapons in case of confrontation that does not depend on service in the militia. From there, we assessed whether our initial conclusion was confirmed by the historical background of the Second Amendment. We looked to history because it has always been widely understood that the Second Amendment codified a pre-existing right The amendment was not intended to lay down a novel principle, but rather codified a right inherited from our English ancestors. After surveying English history dating from the late 1600s, along with American colonial views leading up to the founding, we found no doubt on the basis of both text and history that the Second Amendment conferred an individual right to keep and bear arms. We then canvassed the historical record and found yet further confirmation. That history included the analogous arms-bearing rights in state constitutions that preceded and immediately followed adoption of the Second Amendment, and how the Second Amendment was interpreted from immediately after its ratification through the end of the 19th century. When the principal dissent charged that the latter category of sources was illegitimate post-enactment legislative history— We clarified that examination of a variety of legal and other sources to determine the public understanding of a legal text in the period after its enactment or ratification was a critical tool of constitutional interpretation. In assessing the post-ratification history, we looked to four different types of sources. First, we reviewed three important founding-era legal scholars who interpreted the Second Amendment in published writings. Second, we looked to 19th century cases that interpreted the Second Amendment and found that they universally supported an individual right to keep and bear arms. Third, we examined the discussion of the Second Amendment in Congress and in public discourse after the Civil War as people debated whether and how to secure constitutional rights for newly freed slaves. Fourth, we considered how post-Civil War commentators understood the right. After holding that the Second Amendment protected an individual right to armed self-defense, we also relied on the historical understanding of the amendment to demark the limits on the exercise of that right. 
we noted that, like most rights, the right secured by the Second Amendment is not unlimited. From Blackstone through the 19th century cases, commentators and courts routinely explained that the right was not a right to keep and bear any weapon whatsoever, in any manner whatsoever, and for whatever purpose. For example, we found it fairly supported by the historical tradition of prohibiting the carrying of dangerous and unusual weapons, that the Second Amendment protects the possession and use of weapons that are in common use at the time. That said, we caution that we were not undertaking an exhaustive historical analysis today of the full scope of the Second Amendment and moved on to considering the constitutionality of the District of Columbia's handgun ban. We assessed the lawfulness of that handgun ban by scrutinizing whether it comported with history and tradition. Although we noted that the ban would fail constitutional muster under any of the standards of scrutiny that we have applied to enumerated constitutional rights, we did not engage in means and scrutiny when resolving the constitutional question. Instead, we focused on the historically unprecedented nature of the district's ban, observing that few laws in the history of our nation have come close to that severe restriction. Likewise, when one of the dissents attempted to justify the district's prohibition with founding-era historical precedent, including various restrictive laws in the colonial period, we addressed each purported analog and concluded that they were either irrelevant or did not remotely burden the right of self-defense as much as an absolute ban on handguns. Thus, our earlier historical analysis sufficed to show that the Second Amendment did not countenance a complete prohibition on the use of the most popular weapon chosen by Americans for self-defense in the home. As the foregoing shows, Heller's methodology centered on constitutional text and history. Whether it came to defining the character of the right, individual or militia dependent, suggesting the outer limits of the right, or assessing the constitutionality of a particular regulation, Heller relied on text and history. It did not invoke any means and test such as strict or intermediate scrutiny. Moreover, Heller and MacDonald expressly rejected the application of any judge-empowering, interest-balancing inquiry that asks whether the statute burdens a protected interest in a way or to an extent that is out of proportion to the statute's salutary effects upon other important governmental interests. We declined to engage in means and scrutiny because the very enumeration of the right takes out of the hands of government, even the third branch of government, the power to decide on a case-by-case basis whether the right is really worth insisting upon. We then concluded, a constitutional guarantee subject to future judges' assessments of its usefulness is no constitutional guarantee at all. Not only did Heller decline to engage in means and scrutiny generally, but it also specifically ruled out the intermediate scrutiny test that respondents in the United States now urge us to adopt. Dissenting in Heller, Justice Breyer's proposed standard, asking whether a state burdens a protected interest in a way or to an extent that is out of proportion to the statute's salutary effects upon other important government interests, simply expressed a classic formulation of intermediate scrutiny in a slightly different way. In fact, Justice Breyer all but admitted that his Heller dissent advocated for intermediate scrutiny 
by repeatedly invoking a quintessential intermediate scrutiny precedent. Thus, when Heller expressly rejected that dissent's interest-balancing inquiry, it necessarily rejected intermediate scrutiny. In sum, the Court of Appeals' second step is inconsistent with Heller's historical approach and its rejection of means and scrutiny. We reiterate that the standard for applying the Second Amendment is as follows. When the Second Amendment's plain text covers an individual's conduct, the Constitution presumptively protects that conduct. The government must then justify its regulation by demonstrating that it is consistent with the nation's historical tradition of firearm regulation. Only then may a court conclude that the individual's conduct falls outside the Second Amendment's unqualified command. This Second Amendment standard accords with how we protect other constitutional rights. Take, for example, the freedom of speech in the First Amendment, to which Heller repeatedly compared the right to keep and bear arms. In that context, when the government restricts speech, the government bears the burden of proving the constitutionality of its actions. In some cases, that burden includes showing whether the expressive conduct falls outside of the category of protected speech. And to carry that burden, the government must generally point to historical evidence about the reach of the First Amendment's protections. And beyond the freedom of speech, our focus on history also comports with how we assess many other constitutional claims. If a litigant asserts the right in court to be confronted with the witnesses against him, U.S. Constitution Amendment 6, We require courts to consult history to determine the scope of that right. Similarly, when a litigant claims a violation of his rights under the Establishment Clause, members of this court look to history for guidance. We adopt a similar approach here. To be sure, historical analysis can be difficult. It sometimes requires resolving threshold questions and making nuanced judgments about which evidence to consult and how to interpret it. But reliance on history to inform the meaning of constitutional text, especially text meant to codify a pre-existing right, is, in our view, more legitimate and more administrable than asking judges to make difficult empirical judgments about the cost and benefit of firearms restrictions, especially given their lack of expertise in the field. If the last decade of Second Amendment litigation has taught this court anything, it is that federal courts tasked with making such difficult empirical judgments regarding firearm regulations under the banner of intermediate scrutiny often defer to the determinations of legislatures. But while that judicial deference to legislative interest balancing is understandable and elsewhere appropriate, It is not deference that the Constitution demands here. The Second Amendment is the very product of an interest balancing by the people, and it surely elevates above all other interests the right of law-abiding, responsible citizens to use arms for self-defense. It is this balance, struck by the traditions of the American people, that demands our unqualified deference. The test that we set forth in Heller and apply today requires courts to assess whether modern firearms regulations are consistent with the Second Amendment's text and historical understanding. In some cases, that inquiry will be fairly straightforward. 
For instance, when a challenged regulation addresses a general societal problem that has persisted since the 18th century, the lack of a distinctly similar historical regulation addressing that problem is relevant evidence that the challenged regulation is inconsistent with the Second Amendment. Likewise, if earlier generations addressed the societal problem but did so through materially different means, that also could be evidence that a modern regulation is unconstitutional. And as some jurisdictions actually attempted to enact analogous regulations during this time frame, but those proposals were rejected on constitutional grounds, that rejection surely would provide some probative evidence of unconstitutionality. Heller itself exemplifies this kind of straightforward historical inquiry. One of the district's regulations challenged in Heller totally banned handgun possession in the home. The district in Heller addressed a perceived societal problem, firearm violence in densely populated communities, and it employed a regulation, a flat ban on the possession of handguns in the home, that the founders themselves could have adopted to confront that problem. Accordingly, after considering founding-era historical precedent, including various restrictive laws in the colonial period, and finding that none was analogous to the district's ban, Heller concluded that the handgun ban was unconstitutional. New York's proper cause requirement concerns the same alleged societal problem addressed in Heller, handgun violence primarily in urban areas. Following the course charted by Heller, we will consider whether historical precedent from before, during, and even after the founding evinces a comparable tradition of regulation. And, as we explain below, we find no such tradition in the historical materials that respondents and their amici have brought to bear on that question. While the historical analogies here and in Heller are relatively simple to draw, other cases implicating unprecedented social concerns or dramatic technological changes may require a more nuanced approach. The regulatory challenges posed by firearms today are not always the same as those that preoccupied the founders in 1791 or the Reconstruction Generation in 1868. Fortunately, the founders created a constitution and a Second Amendment intended to endure for ages to come and consequently to be adapted to the various crises of human affairs. Although its meaning is fixed according to the understandings of those who ratified it, the constitution can and must apply to circumstances beyond those the founders specifically anticipated. We have already recognized in Heller at least one way in which the Second Amendment's historically fixed meaning applies to new circumstances. Its reference to arms does not apply only to those arms in existence in the 18th century. Just as the First Amendment protects modern forms of communications and the Fourth Amendment applies to modern forms of search, the Second Amendment extends prima facie to all instruments that constitute bearable arms, even those that were not in existence at the time of the founding. Thus, even though the Second Amendment's definition of arms is fixed according to its historical understanding, that general definition covers modern instruments that facilitate armed self-defense. Much like we use history to determine which modern arms are protected by the Second Amendment, so too does history guide our consideration of modern regulations that were unimaginable at the founding. 
When confronting such present-day firearms regulations, this historical inquiry that courts must conduct will often involve reasoning by analogy, a commonplace task for any lawyer or judge. Like all analogical reasoning, determining whether a historical regulation is a proper analog for a distinctly modern firearm regulation requires a determination of whether the two regulations are relevantly similar. And because everything is similar in infinite ways to everything else, one needs some metric enabling the analogizer to assess which similarities are important and which are not. For example, a green truck and a green hat are relevantly similar if one's metric is things that are green. They are not relevantly similar if the applicable metric is things you can wear. While we do not now provide an exhaustive survey of the features that render regulations relevantly similar under the Second Amendment, we do think that Heller and McDonald point toward at least two metrics, how and why the regulations burden a law-abiding citizen's right to arm self-defense. As we stated in Heller and repeated in McDonald, individual self-defense is the central component of the Second Amendment right. Therefore, whether modern and historical regulations impose a comparable burden on the right of armed self-defense and whether that burden is comparably justified are central considerations when engaging in an analogical inquiry. To be clear, analogical reasoning under the Second Amendment is neither a regulatory straitjacket nor a regulatory blank check. On the one hand, courts should not uphold every modern law that remotely resembles a historical analog because doing so risks endorsing outliers that our ancestors would never have accepted. On the other hand, analogical reasoning requires only that the government identify a well-established and representative historical analog, not a historical twin. So even if a modern-day regulation is not a dead ringer for historical precursors, it still may be analogous enough to pass constitutional muster. Consider, for example, Heller's discussion of long-standing laws forbidding the carrying of firearms in sensitive places, such as schools and government buildings. Although the historical record yields relatively few 18th and 19th century sensitive places where weapons were altogether prohibited, legislative assemblies, polling places, and courthouses, we are also aware of no disputes regarding the lawfulness of such prohibitions. We therefore can assume it's settled that these locations were sensitive places where arms carrying could be prohibited consistent with the Second Amendment, and courts can use analogies to these historical regulations of sensitive places to determine that modern regulations prohibiting the carry of firearms in new and analogous sensitive places are constitutionally permissible. Although we have no occasion to comprehensively define sensitive places in this case, we do think respondents err in their attempt to characterize New York's proper cause requirement as a sensitive place law. In their view, sensitive places where the government may lawfully disarm law-abiding citizens include all places where people typically congregate and where law enforcement and other public safety professionals are presumptively available. It is true that people sometimes congregate in sensitive places, and it is likewise true that law enforcement professionals are usually presumptively available in those locations. 
But expanding the category of sensitive places simply to all places of public congregation that are not isolated from law enforcement defines the category of sensitive places far too broadly. Respondents' argument would, in effect, exempt cities from the Second Amendment and would eviscerate the general right to publicly carry arms for self-defense that we discuss in detail below. Put simply, there is no historical basis for New York to effectively declare the island of Manhattan a sensitive place simply because it is crowded and protected generally by the New York Police Department. Like Heller, we do not undertake an exhaustive historical analysis of the full scope of the Second Amendment, and we acknowledge that applying constitutional principles to novel modern conditions can be difficult and leave close questions at the margins. But that is hardly unique to the Second Amendment. It is an essential component of judicial decision-making under our enduring Constitution. We see no reason why judges frequently tasked with answering these kinds of historical, analogical questions cannot do the same for Second Amendment claims. And that wraps up part two of seven of my reading of New York State Rifle and Pistol Association v. Bruin, the second quarter of Justice Thomas's majority opinion. When we next meet in part three of seven, we'll have the third quarter of Justice Thomas's majority opinion. I'll see you there. If you like this kind of content, and I know you do, that's why you're here, you may as well consider becoming a Law of Self-Defense member. It's dirt cheap to at least try it out. You can get a two-week trial membership for only 99 cents. Just go to lawofselfdefense.com slash trial to sign up for that. In the unlikely event you don't like it and you'd like your money back, we'll give you a 200% refund. Most people, almost everyone, stays a member. And just being a standard member of Law of Self-Defense is dirt cheap. It's only about 30 cents a day, less than $10 a month to be a member of Law of Self-Defense. Get unlimited access to all our members-only content. It's the only way to have your comments and questions on live streams be addressed by me. Uh, you get a members-only podcast. Much of our content is limited, so only members can access it. Get all that and much more at lawselfdefense.com slash trial. Just try it out for two weeks, 99 cents, 200% money back guarantee. It's a negative risk opportunity. I hope you see you as a member real soon.